I'm David Beeson and we're now at chapter 25 of A History of England, which is dedicated to what evolved into the Protectorate. Let's start with a complaint of leveller John Lilburn about the House of Lords during the Civil Wars. All you intended when you set us a-fighting was merely to unhorse and dismount our old riders and tyrants, that so you might get up and ride in their stead. Ultimately, the same might have been said of the Republic. One of the last acts of the rump parliament before it was dissolved was to appoint a council of state to run the affairs of the nation. Cromwell was a member, and increasingly over time, its dominant voice, especially as he held the loyalty of the army he'd ended up leading in the civil wars. After Cromwell dismissed the rump, the Puritans, Presbyterians and other radical Protestants rather hoped he would turn England into a nation guided in all its doings by Christian principles, specifically the version of those principles that they favoured. They may at first have been encouraged by Cromwell's actions when he asked Protestant congregations to nominate MPs for a new parliament that came to be known as Barebones, after one of its members, praise God, Barebon. It had 140 members and included representatives of all three kingdoms, making it the first true Parliament of the British Isles, though only just. There were five members from Scotland and six from Ireland, as opposed to 129 from England. The other name for this Parliament was the Saints, which will give you an idea of where it stood on religious matters. Regrettably, from their point of view, despite his good start, Cromwell proved less than enthusiastic about ushering in their version of godliness, to the point that they began to refer to him as a man of sin. They took to ranting until Cromwell could stand it no longer. A group of MPs loyal to him showed up for what they knew would be a poorly attended moment in the parliamentary day. To make sure things stayed that way, the army took the precaution, reminiscent of Pride's purge, of posting soldiers at the entrance to keep potential troublemakers away. Parliament then voted to dissolve itself. The Council of State introduced an instrument of government, closely modelled on the heads of proposals which Cromwell and Ironton had prepared for their negotiations with Charles I. It provided for yet another parliament, 400 strong, again including representatives of all the kingdoms. But what was most significant is that it resurrected the ancient and lofty function of Lord Protector. Among other powers, the Protector could summon or dismiss Parliament. It's from this point on that we can refer to the Commonwealth of England as the Protectorate. It was one way to cut through all the squabbling, appoint a single man to be head of state. Who did it give the job to, you ask? Yep, no prizes for guessing it was Cromwell, and he was appointed for life. The last person to hold that title had been Edward Seymour, who'd looked after the shop during the minority of his nephew, King Edward VI. As you probably remember, that didn't turn out too well, with his tenure ending on the Axeman's block. But convinced that he was the agent of God's will, or at least God's will as he rather than the Puritans interpreted it, Cromwell must have hoped that things would work out better for him. The members of the various parliaments of the Republic were remarkably similar to the old ones, Squires of the shires, landowners, lawyers, even the sprinkling of nobility. 
We're a long way from the leveller notion of populist sovereignty with a parliament exercising powers delegated to it by the people. Though I expect the MPs themselves would no doubt have felt that they perfectly adequately represented the people's interests. Indeed, as prosperous and successful men, they doubtless felt that they were the best of the people and therefore the most appropriate representatives for it. It's funny how elites, even the self-appointed or self-perpetuating ones, always seem to see things that way. Indeed, maybe the self-appointed and self-perpetuating ones most of all. Cromwell expected the new parliament to adopt some measures he wanted enacted, but instead it turned his attention to working on moderate changes to the constitution. He didn't like what they were doing at all. The solution? You guessed. He dismissed this parliament too. When there was a failed royalist uprising soon afterwards, Cromwell moved towards something far more like a naked military dictatorship. The country was divided into 12 regions, each led by a major general. Do you remember the phrase that may not have been spoken by Cromwell, but which I felt summed up the attitude of the new model army? Put your faith in God and keep your powder dry? As I said then, this was another way of saying, be clear on your beliefs and do your soldiering well. The rule of the major generals had both those ingredients, military might and the function of making England godly. They may have taken their godly duties a little too seriously, however, for Cromwell's taste, rather inclining towards Puritan excess. That meant no feast days, no maypoles, no Christmas, no fun. It was all very well demanding that the people spend their time giving thanks to God, but if there was no fun to be had, just what were they supposed to be thankful for? In any case, though the new model army was a superb fighting force and highly effective against another army, how could a few thousand soldiers possibly control the daily lives, let alone the beliefs, of a nation of approaching six million people? They didn't have a Gestapo or a KGB and the pervasive network of informers those police services relied on to enforce their rule. Instead, the major generals had to use the existing structures of justices of the peace and local squires. Few of those figures were Puritan and they took great glee in making a mockery of dictatorship by the godly. One of the better stories concerns a young serving woman charged with working on a Sunday. The authorities dealing with her case falsely classified her as a minor. That meant her master had control over her punishment. This took the form of a few strokes, and that's real strokes in the sense of stroking rather than blows, and they were administered with a twig applied to her outer garments. The wheels came off the bus when one of the major generals tried to introduce new forms of taxation to support his regime. The Second Protectorate Parliament, which Cromwell had meanwhile called, voted the measure down. It rightly feared that such taxation might make military rule permanent. That, together with Cromwell losing faith in them, meant that the regime of the Major Generals only lasted a year. The Second Protectorate Parliament voted to strengthen the Protector's powers. In fact, they went so far as to offer Cromwell the throne. But he decided not to become Oliver I. It took him a while to decide that. It's an interesting insight into Cromwell's soul that, precisely because he saw himself as the instrument of God, he sometimes took a long time over decisions 
while he waited for the guidance of Providence to show him the way. That took six weeks when it came to the offer of the crown. In the end, though, he decided that he'd been doing godly work in ending the monarchy, and it would be entirely inappropriate for him to reintroduce it. I would not seek to set up that which Providence hath destroyed and laid in the dust, he said, and I would not build Jericho again. Even so, his appointment as Lord Protector this time was celebrated with something extremely close to a coronation, including purple robes, a sword of justice and a scepter. He also reintroduced one of the fundamental aspects of monarchy when Parliament empowered him to name a successor. He designated his eldest surviving son, Richard, to follow him into the protectorship. England was pretty much back to where Parliament had wanted to be before the war. A single man held overall power. However, he ruled with Parliament, not against it, though in Cromwell's case that wasn't too hard, since he'd subjugated it to his will, something Charles I had never managed to do. But then Charles had never had an instrument as effective as the new model army to call on, and Cromwell could count on its full support. That made the Protectorate a major improvement over the quarrelling and ultimately warring reign of Charles I. But a revolutionary change from it? That it certainly wasn't. I started this episode quoting John Lilburn's attack on the House of Lords as men who'd freed the Kingdom of Tyrants, but only to mount and ride that horse themselves. I hope you now agree that much the same could be said of the leaders of the Republic. In many ways, they were just new riders in the old saddle. Better riders, more competent riders, and a little more tolerant of diversity, but more of a modification of the past rather than a break from it. What did the Republic achieve? England won a war against the Dutch, their main commercial rivals, though not conclusively, and there'd be more fighting in the future. There was victory over Spain too, which had the far more lasting effect of transferring Jamaica from Spanish rule to English. And then there were significant changes in other, more domestic areas. Here are a couple for you. First, the Jews. Brutal persecution had chased them out of England three and a half centuries earlier. But by Cromwell's time they were back, in small numbers and in a clandestine way. Their first synagogue, for instance, was organised in a secret location in London. Cromwell, who'd seen how positive their role had been in the growing prosperity and power of Holland, favoured allowing the Jews back into England, but couldn't get a majority to support him. When, however, war broke out with Spain, making the property of Spanish residents liable to seizure, one man targeted for such treatment defended himself by claiming that he wasn't actually Spanish, but Jewish. The authorities gravely considered his claim and decided to allow it. A small victory, you might think, but it had established a mighty principle in law that Jews could live, worship, trade and own property in England. The other lasting legacy of the Republic is far less significant politically or morally, though it arguably has had more impact on English daily life to the present day. I only want to mention significant dates in these podcasts, but you may agree that this one really matters. 1652. In that year, the first coffee shops opened in England. What they served was apparently pretty ghastly, probably undrinkable by today's tastes. But back then, people liked it, especially for the buzz it gave them. What's more, Puritans, who hated alcohol even though they didn't get around to banning it, were fine with coffee. 
It didn't lead to drunkenness, so buzz or no buzz, it clearly wasn't sinful. Over the next few decades, coffee houses proliferated. They became meeting places of choice for businessmen, artists, writers, or people of various political hues. Generally, they offered somewhere people could spend time together without emerging drunk. Next time you're having a coffee in England, or indeed in New England, raise your cup to the memory of the Puritans who encouraged the trend that culminated in the drink you're about to enjoy. And remember that all this happened long before the English developed a taste for tea. Well, that about wrapped it up for the Republic. When Cromwell died, his son Richard took over as Lord Protector as planned. Not for long, though, as we shall see in the next episode. Thanks for listening.